Once again, welcome to the Vitruvian Man podcast. This is Vinamra Kasana, your host, and I'm super psyched to be here again. We are also on Spotify and Google Podcasts, and we'll be on Apple Podcasts very, very shortly. So go check us out over there and give us a subscribe button. Once again, I thank you so much for your dedicated listening and your comments on Instagram and Facebook. It really gives me, gives me great joy to conclude this series of interviews with my, with my professors since I just graduated. Anyway, in this episode, I'm going to discuss some really deep questions about our existence with my professor of philosophy, Professor Paul Katsifanas, who teaches uh, existentialist philosophy at Boston University. We discuss things like, how do you construct values in the wake of the death of God? What really gives meaning to our lives? What is nihilism? How can we overcome our jealousy and resentment and become better human beings? All of these questions and much more will be answered in the conversation that follows. Tune in and enjoy. Today I have with me um, my esteemed professor, Professor Paul Katsafanas, who uh, teaches classes in uh, existentialism and 19th century philosophy. Is that accurate? Yes, that's right. Um, at, at Boston University, and uh, he's actually one of the few scholars on Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, in the world, and he's, he's you know, privileged us here to talk about some of the things that Nietzsche was fascinated about, uh, and especially we're going to cover a lot of topics about nihilism, especially you know in terms of uh, the more post- postmodern context that we find ourselves in, also meaning, values, the death of God, all of those fantastic things. Um, so, and I've had the privilege of taking a class in existentialism with Professor Katsafanas. You know, just to start off, Professor Katsafanas, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's an honor and a pleasure. I just wanted to start off and say that I love the way that you were able to synthesize so much of um, with like seven, eight philosophers' yeah. ideas in one class and take us through different phases of emotions and ways of being in the world. And I wonder as to... You're going through all of these different philosophers. You go through Frederick Nietzsche, mm-hmm. you go through Sartre, you go through Camus, through Beauvoir, through Dostoevsky. What's the effect that it has on you trying to synthesize all those together? Oh, it can be a bit overwhelming. I mean, each of these thinkers is addressing really deep and important questions about human existence. And, uh, you know, they're not interested in just finding uh, little problems to address here and there. They're mm-hmm. really all after questions about the meaning of life, essentially, and what attitudes we should have toward life. So they're coming up with very different solutions, uh, some of them quite pessimistic, others mm. much more optimistic. So it's, um, I find it fascinating to teach the course, but it can be a bit exhausting as well. Right. Yeah. Which is such a different deviation from the sort of way in which undergraduates are introduced to philosophy. Yeah. In, in, because you start off with Plato, Socrates, mm. Aristotle, and what they often tend to talk about is, um, and I might go off on a limb here, it's like grandiose, constructions of how to see the world itself. They conceptualize the whole world and they build these theories, um, which I see, which which I think, and this is where Nietzsche has this idea that they're trying, they're not um, realizing that even these theories of how to see the world have some fundamental assumptions that they have, mm-hmm. that have gone unchecked. Yeah, that's right. So Nietzsche thinks that uh, systematic philosophy of the sort that you're describing, where mm-hmm. we try to start with, I suppose you could say, theory-neutral presuppositions about what the world is like, whether that might be a value of descriptions or uh, 
just pure descriptions that don't cite values. Uh, in any case, Nietzsche thinks that that always goes wrong, that there's always something that's been smuggled in at the start so that the philosopher ends up justifying whatever it is that he started with, essentially. And um, Nietzsche thinks that having a more piecemeal approach, so not going after that grand systematic theory, but instead trying to address interconnected issues hmm. in a way that does justice to each of them, he thinks that's a much more promising approach. Yeah, that, that's one of the things you talk about in, in your interview with uh, 316 that yeah. I had had the privilege to uh, read. And you said that the conundrum of the modern philosopher is that you cannot know, you can no longer conceptualize an entire world. That's right. <laughs> the best you can do is uh, improve upon a nuance of someone's theory yeah. or disagree with it. That's right. I think that is how most contemporary philosophy goes. So it's there's a vast amount that's being published and it's simply impossible to take account of all of it. So every year there are hundreds of books, thousands mm. of articles that are published. No one could read them all. So what tends to happen is that philosophers specialize. They'll address uh, some area of philosophy and within that area mm. they'll take on some restricted set of questions. It's very different than what thinkers like Nietzsche tried to do where Nietzsche is really trying to get at the whole of human experience and to think about deep questions about what our attitude toward life should be, mm -hmm. to let that be informed by uh, speculations about moral psychology, about how human action occurs, what our emotions are like, and all of these topics. It's, it's a very hard thing to address uh, if you're going to do it in Nietzsche style because it requires a vast background uh, set of beliefs about the way the world is, that all of which have to be scrutinized and all of which have to be analyzed. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that... Um, he refers to it as the unconscious, right? So he thinks that um, we do have a great number of unconscious mental activities that mm. are going on at all times. So part of what he's thinking in this sort of case that you're describing is that there'll be these presuppositions that individuals have without noticing and that those presuppositions will control the people's thinking to some extent. Mm. So uh, Kant, for example, is somebody who Nietzsche likes to criticize for as Nietzsche sees it, having these unexamined assumptions of, of a religious character that uh, Kant is sort of surreptitiously trying to justify without being genuinely critical toward them. So uh, that's just one example. But in general, Nietzsche thinks that there will be a number of tacit background commitments that are often going unexamined in philosophical thought. Right. And he really wants to get at those and see whether they're defensible. So when I say something like, um, I am conscious that I would like to invite Professor Katsafanas to a mm. podcast. Yeah. There is a corpus of unconscious material that's manifesting that I'm unaware of that might, yeah. Yeah, he does think that in typical cases mm. that will be true. So you may have, uh, he likes to talk about drives and maybe later we'll, we'll talk about what drives are, but mm -hmm. he thinks that there are these background psychological states or processes that will influence what's going on at the conscious level. So you'll have various desires, various goals that will occur to you consciously, but those will be given their force and in some cases redirected by unconscious mental mm -hmm. processes so that what you're getting at the conscious level would only be a small part of the uh, total set of things that are going on within your mind. Right. So when we when we say things like, um, you know, usually I'm a pretty nice person, <laughs> but something came over me, yeah. or I, that was an unconsciously inspired incident. And then there's the issue of, well, if I have an unconscious, what about the rest of the world? So how does he, you know, tackle with that? Yeah. So he does think that for every individual, there'll be a vast amount of unconscious material that's impacting the way that the individual thinks, relates to the world, what values the individual has, what his beliefs are, 
um, his habits, his typical ways of reacting to stimuli. So he does think that there'll be a lot of variance between people. There'll also be some elements that we have in common. So he thinks that we have certain characteristic dispositions, certain emotions that will be manifest in different ways in different people, but he sometimes will try to classify people into different types by pointing to their characteristic emotions and the way that those manifest themselves. So he does think that um, while there will be some individual variances, there also are some things that we can say about human beings in general and what their unconscious lives are like. Right, which is which is sort of the idea that Carl Jung, the famous uh, mm. Swiss psychologist, propounded upon further, where he said that humanity itself has a, this massive um, bedrock of of ideas, which they which he calls the collective unconscious, yeah. which is mm. that which is to say that, for example, if my ancestors were someone um, who had seen a lot of grief in their life, right, mm. or a lot of tragedy, yeah. that even if I live in this postmodern world, I might have the capacity for some of that. Vice versa, if my ancestors were were people who had conquered a lot of things, you know, irrespective of my situations, I would still have that drive to, and I'm using the word drive here a bit colloquially. So Nietzsche, he's not, he doesn't say too much, certainly not as much as Jung about the Mm. way in which these things would be passed on from generation to generation. He is interested in Darwin, and he sometimes tries to give roughly Darwinian accounts of the way in which various traits would would be be? passed on. Oh, so... um, he actually reads Darwin in an interesting way. So he criticizes certain ideas of mm-hmm. Darwin's, but he's very interested in the idea that we could give a causal account of the way that various tendencies or dispositions are passed on. Basically, the idea would be that in Darwin, that the traits or capacities that are conducive to reproductive success are the ones right. that tend to persevere and be passed on um, because the individuals having them tend to reproduce at a greater rate. So Nietzsche disagrees with some of the details of that, but he really likes the idea that we can account for um, certain types of emotions, certain types of responses that human beings have, certain facts about the way that human culture habitually unfolds. Um, we can account for that in a in a way that makes reference to roughly Darwinian processes. But what about the idea of uh, reductionism? Is what what is Nietzsche, Nietzsche's take on uh, mystery, like like yeah. the mystery of life? Because I think what what tends to happen with uh, the more Platonic and Socratic views of the world is that there's this idea of um, the world of forms, you know, which yeah. is which is to say that um, there's a, a perfect world that exists out there, which is the blueprint, and, yeah. and th- that blueprint is manifested imperfectly in the things in the world that we see, like our physical world, right? Yeah. So so Nietzsche doesn't like that idea at all. So mm-hmm. he um, thinks that that's a deep mistake on Plato's part. So he often describes this by saying that. He's opposed to philosophers who posit being as the fundamental category, and he wants mm. to posit becoming right. uh, this process of change as the mm-hmm. fundamental thing. Um, there are a lot of different things that he dislikes about that platonic picture, but one of them that he really dislikes and that he incidentally sees as embodied in Christianity and a lot of other religions is this idea that what's of genuine value or genuine worth is something outside of the world, something other than what we're immediately confronted with, what right. we're actually engaging with, so that we make reference to something absent, something distant, something that will never actually be instantiated in this world in order to justify this world or in order to think about what the true characteristics of this world are. Mm-hmm. He thinks a lot of evaluative concepts at play in Christianity and more generally just in modern moral theory. He mm-hmm. thinks a lot of those are going to have that general character where we think that there's something good about life, but what's good about life is... Um, described in terms of something that points beyond life. So we see some future goal or some external goal as making life worth living, 
rather than looking at what's actually here, looking at what life actually is, right, and grappling with that and dealing with that and valuing that for its own mm -hmm. sake. Yeah, which 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 reminds me about this interesting idea that he has that he really seems to um, gather a lot of power from this 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 base emotion, which we even now in the postmodern world have sort of pushed on the rug, and and the emotion is envy. Yeah, he he says that you know. Um, if you really consult your enemy, it, it'll show you that you're envious because you want to be like that person, or you you want to have that those things that that person has, mm. and you can you can fuel that to power you, and you can then uh, embark on the process of self overcoming. So, could you talk more about that? Yeah. So, one thing that Nietzsche says about friendship in general is that. Um, he'd like to have friends who are also in a sense enemies, people mm. who spur him onwards, people who he struggles against, he set up ideals that he would then try to surmount in some fashion. Right. So that sort of antagonistic relationship where uh, you see another. But he didn't have a lot of friends though, right? He had a few, he's not in much physical contact with, he has a few friends who he's writing letters to and so okay. forth and who we'll see from time to time throughout his life. But mm. yeah, he's mostly solitary. He, um, after resigning from the university due to his illness, he spends um, over 10 years just sort of traveling throughout Europe, mostly yeah. alone, staying in uh, Switzerland and Italy and various other places. But yeah, mostly alone. So um, he does have people he's corresponding with, but not right. many people he's on a, uh, he's seeing day to day or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So um, yeah, but he thinks that one nice relationship that we can have to other people is what some people might describe as envy. It's um, He likes to describe it as a kind of agonistic relationship using uh -huh. this ancient Greek word, uh, agon, which just means contest or struggle. Right. And he really likes the idea that we could be spurred on to greater heights by a, a type of comparison of ourselves with others. So roughly the idea would be that I, I see that someone is succeeding. Uh, maybe I'm doing philosophy and I see this other person who's doing great philosophy. Hmm. One thing I could do is just resent that and let it infect my own work and be mm. like bitter and angry that this person another thing i could do though is i could take that as a spur to uh, be more productive on my own to think deeper thoughts and so forth and that's really the state that nietzsche right. is trying to get at when he talks about the the good forms of envy or the good forms of jealousy and so forth he distinguishes it from what he sometimes calls resentment he uses this french word for resentment mm -hmm. that's supposed to be quite bad um, that's supposed to involve a, a vengeful feeling of uh, like right. impotent jealousy and rage directed at someone so, so how, how does this resentment manifest so that type he thinks is often manifest in evaluative judgments hmm. so the basic thing he's thinking about is something like this that often when there's something that we very deeply want so imagine whatever it is you most deeply desire mm -hmm. and then imagine that someone else has it and you see that person as blocking you from getting it yeah you mm -hmm. you see that person that way you perceive them that way you perceive the other person as having what you most desperately want and therefore blocking you or preventing you from having that thing mm -hmm. so one thing that can happen in a circumstance like that is that you can begin to feel a kind of hatred or uh, jealous rage toward the person who has the thing right mm -hmm. so there's a temptation to disparage that person, to think that even if you initially liked them or viewed them as admirable in some respect, if you can view them negatively, it can make you feel better, right? You can yeah. you can uh, take out your frustration, your rage, your jealousy in that sort of way. And if that goes far enough, Nietzsche thinks that one thing that can happen and that he thinks char characteristically does happen for a certain type of person 
is that your values begin to change in subtle ways. Yeah. So, um, um, you know, imagine that this person, I don't know, imagine that you're uh, in your youth or something, you're really, you want to be a great athlete, right? Imagine I want to be a great athlete and I, I try, but I just keep failing and mm -hmm. other people are succeeding. If I don't reconcile myself to that, if I start resenting the successful athletes, I might start to gradually shift my values such that I start thinking of athletes as, I don't know, as like superficial or as uh, yeah. problematic in various ways. So my actual values might start to shift. And there's a way in which once they shift, it'll make me feel much better because I'll feel superior to these people rather right. than inferior to them. So one thing that um, this, uh, this word that Nietzsche uses, one thing that's supposed to pick out is that sort of state where we start out by engaging in these sort of fantasies um, mm. where we disparage the person who has what we want and so forth. But if it goes far enough, it can actually lead to a change in our values. Right, which is, which is sort of what you talked about in the interview is that our conscious interpretations of um, these these events, especially our perception of these people, can then influence our unconscious. Yes. We do that enough, we're mm. sort of um, maligning and almost tainting our psyche and then that's yeah. what it's going to bring up again and again, right? Mm, that's right, yes. Yeah, because, um, and I think about that. What, what's so fascinating, especially in the more postmodern context with the radicalization of politics right now is that we have this, um, social media essentially doesn't have, no longer has the place for any centrists, right? Yeah. It's, it's usually the extreme polarities of either side, right? Mm. And what they're doing consciously is they're, they're empowering themselves on both sides, ultra left, ultra right, mm. by essentially resenting and then disparaging the other side. Yeah. And so they're only being served up. It's like a, you know, self-feedback loop. So I'm wondering what would Nietzsche have to say about um, tackling your resentment and then fueling it into envy and then finally being successful in the postmodern context. So how we might eliminate it or counteract yes. it. And that would be very difficult. So he's worried that um, in his context, one thing that he thinks you'd have to do is shift some of our characteristic values because he thinks that a lot of our values that we traditionally accept are expressive of resentment. So they mm. would tend to foster it and promote it. Um, thinking about how that might go in the modern context, I suppose there are certainly some kinds of debate of the sorts that you're mentioning that just foster that sort of resentful, vengeful yeah. attitude toward the person. These uh, ways of debating that aren't at all moderate, that don't really um, try to do justice to the other side, but uh, disparage the other side and foster a kind of hatred of the other side. Nietzsche thinks that's extremely dangerous. Hmm. Um, one thing that he points out is that once that process gets going, it does tend to feed on itself, as you're suggesting. So once we start down that road, it's quite difficult to curtail. One thing that he might try to do, I suppose, is what he was trying to do in his context, which is to foster a type of valuing. So, so let me back up a second. Nietzsche thinks that there are two basic ways of valuing. Right. One way is what he sees as happening in the ancient world, in Homeric Greece, for example. And there he thinks that the nobles value affirmatively in the sense that they think very highly of themselves. They um, have positive thoughts about their own dispositions and characteristic traits and so forth. So they just sort of unreflectively think of themselves as the good. Yeah. And then whatever's not them, that's kind of unfortunate and bad and so right. forth. But he thinks that's very different from what happens with modern values, where he imagines that what happens there is that we first single out some other person or type of person or group of people and label them as evil. And then we define good 
as opposition, you know, in opposition to that. So evil comes first, and then good is whatever's not evil. Right. Whereas in the ancient world, just good comes first. And, yeah. So he's thinking. I, I mean, I think a lot of the characteristic modes of discourse in the modern world are basically engaged in that sort of process that I was just describing, where it's not so much that we start with a sense of what we want, what's positive, what we value. Mm -hmm. We rather start by rejecting something else, something right. other, labeling that evil or reprehensible or bad. And then we define good as whatever's not that. So, you know, you see right. on, in the political spectrums, you see that, you know, one side looks at what's characteristic of the other side and labels that evil mm -hmm. and defines itself in opposition to that. Right. The contrast, if we were to be more like uh, Nietzsche's ancient nobles, what we'd be doing is thinking of something that's good. We wouldn't be focused on the rejection of other. We'd be focused on right. the acceptance of something and the definition of values in terms but of that. But that's really interesting that you say that because in some sense, he is propounding the rejection of things like the church. That's right, yes. And he's, he's saying that vehemently, like the biggest things that plague Western society of his time are alcohol and the church, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can elucidate the reasoning for that, yeah, why he says sure. that. So the alcohol thing is, I guess, a bit easier. He's interested in the physiological basis of a lot of our values. So Nietzsche takes very seriously the idea that we, we're animals. We have bodies. Our, mm -hmm. The states of our bodies influence our thoughts and our emotions and our values, ultimately. So one thing that he says about alcohol is he critiques the way in which it dulls the senses and so forth. He thinks that uh, by consuming, uh, you know, he, he thinks the cultures that consume large amounts of alcohol are essentially deadening themselves to the world, are reducing the kinds of engagement, especially the emotional engagement that they could otherwise have with the world. And oh. that's what he dislikes about that. He says similar things about diet as well. So he thinks that certain kinds of diet are ones that would not be conducive to right. Um, the right ways of life, the ways of life that he affirms. So he's really interested in the sort of physical or physiological basis of health that's really vitality. fascinating yeah. because it still holds true even now like mm. you know for a fact that if you eat a high carb diet yeah you're not going to be able to reason as efficiently you know? it's true yeah um and, yeah yeah and, and Nietzsche's very unhealthy as as i'm sure you know and as some mm -hmm. of your listeners might know he's suffering from all kinds of um debilitating conditions so it's very vivid for him in part because he says that if he drinks a bit of alcohol he's just done for days he'll he'll be right. um, feverish he'll be uh in various kinds of Pain so he's balancing his health and and still writing these, yeah. these these treatises on human life. Yeah, which is very hard for him. It, he suffered tremendously, and uh, you know he had to resign his university professorship at a very young age and survive on a small pension. And part of the reason he's traveling to all these places in Europe is because he's looking for a climate that he thinks will agree with his health. Yeah. So you know he think maybe mountain air, maybe uh, the air from the sea, something like that might help him. That's so fascinating because. Despite his health and all of those things, um, he he suffered from a mental collapse. And, yeah. And mm. but he 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 sort of gives a proclamation and he ac uh, asks his readers that they live dangerously, that that they should construct their houses on the top of Mount Vesuvius. Yes. Um, and then you know send their ships out into uncharted seas. So is he is he asking people that? They should take a call to adventure. Is, is that what's happening? Yeah, so he's very interested in promoting values of self-overcoming. Mm. So one of the deepest tendencies or motivational dispositions that he thinks we have is what he calls will to power. Mm. And that it sounds sort of mysterious, but essentially what he means by that 
is he thinks whenever I aim at anything at all, so if I aim to like do philosophy or participate in sports or talk to a friend, anything at all, he thinks that in addition to having that particular aim, I'm also aiming to overcome challenges. So to, to find things that I can struggle against and surmount. And the people who express will to power to the greatest extent would be those who, who do that, who s deliberately seek out challenges so that they can express their power in overcoming them. So mm -hmm. if you're doing philosophy, you choose the most difficult problems. If you're an athlete, you uh, want to struggle against the, the best competitors, the ones who have a chance of beating right. you and so forth. So that's will to power. And that's supposed to be connected to overcoming in the sense that he thinks if you're moved by will to power in the sense that I'm describing, where you seek out challenges and so forth, then you'll never be static. You'll never uh, just mm. rest content with whatever right. you presently have. You'll and, always and, want more. And he believes that our condition, our baseline condition is not being content. It's That's always right. moving. Yeah. yeah. He thinks that there are certain values that we accept that sort of tempt us away from that. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that what we most fundamentally want is just this expression of power or activity, mm. this overcoming of challenges. That's really interesting because it, it seems that there's a lot of parallels with his idea um, and the idea of the Stoics, which is, and yeah. I think he writes about that. And this is actually something that I remember reading from the readings you gave us like two years ago in your class. Yeah. Uh, the Stoics can digest stones, something something yeah. along those lines. Which is, is that a critique of the Stoics? Because it seems to me that what Nietzsche is propounding about self-overcoming and facing adversity and taking up the toughest challenges is really similar to what the Stoics were saying. So Nietzsche has particular readings of Stoicism where he dislikes aspects of it. And the thing that he dislikes about it is that he reads some of the Stoics as counseling a kind of withdrawal from life. Interesting. So, yeah, so one of the things that some of the Stoics argue for is only being troubled or only caring about things that you can control. So what can I control? I can control my own thoughts. I can control my judgments. So some of the Stoics will say things like, uh, you know, it's not things that can hurt us. It's not things that can harm us. It's our judgments about it's those our perceptions things. perceptions of things, yeah. Yeah, and we're in control of that. So the way that that can, can come out, though, is as a form of disengagement from the world where the world becomes irrelevant because it's only my judgments about the world right. that are really um, at issue here. And Nietzsche doesn't like that. He likes the types of um, evaluative systems and philosophies that really push us to engage with the actual world. So he, he does sometimes object to stoicism on those grounds. But um, the general idea you were pointing to about um, sort of bolstering our sense of control or um, like overcoming adversity and yeah, challenges. Like, yeah, that sort of stuff. Nietzsche would that he really likes. It's mm -hmm. just this um, this movement of withdrawal is what he's objecting to. Right, right. Yeah. Because because um, I'm assuming that he wanted his philosophy to be accessible to a small. I don't think he was writing for the masses necessarily. No. He was writing for a small niche who really wanted to take mm -hmm. control of their lives. Um, because I was I was listening to the philosophize this podcast and uh -huh. fantastic uh, guy. I forgot his name, but he was talking about this idea that he wanted this small niche to use these teachings and then go and propound them in the world as yeah. opposed to withdrawing from life completely and living the life of a lone, lonely um, writer or, or, or that capacity. Yeah, that's right. So he certainly thinks that most ordinary individuals just aren't going to be able to appreciate his writings. And mm -hmm. he's really, he says repeatedly that he's just writing for the few. He wants um, some sort of elite set of readers to, to be moved by him, to be converted right. by what he's saying. And then for that to have a broader impact, of course. Why does Nietzsche hate democracy? So that's a good question. He thinks there are a couple of tendencies within democracy that are 
ones that would thwart that picture of self-overcoming that he propounds. So one thing is he thinks that democracy rests on the idea of a fundamental equality Mm -hmm. between all human beings. He's actually quite skeptical of that idea. So that idea, he thinks, makes sense within a religious context, within, you know, if you have various religious presuppositions, then you can justify the claim that all people are equal before God and so forth. But Nietzsche thinks that outside of that context, there's no obvious reason for accepting that sort of claim. And he's very interested in hierarchically ordered sorts of societies where different sorts of people are thought to have different evaluative statuses. So some people are worth more, uh, evaluatively speaking. Yeah. So it's um, very much uh, very much opposed to modern ways of thinking about it. But yeah. Nietzsche thinks there's something to it. And I guess another thing that he dislikes about the democratic movements is he thinks they have a way of reducing our values to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. So he thinks that if you look at antiquity, the highest values are typically taken to be things that are extremely difficult to attain. So if you look at Aristotle or, you know, one of the ancient Greeks. Reason, or, poetry. Yeah, it's stuff that would only be accessible to a very small elite group. And even for them, it would be something that you have to struggle tremendously to attain huh. and could never attain completely. If you contrast that with some of the more modern philosophers who think that the things of most value, for example, are having pleasures or experiencing a simple kind of happiness. So if you look at uh, certain utilitarians, for example. Or even Epicureans, for that matter. Mm, Yeah. Um, So Nietzsche worries that that sort of thing um, sort of shifts our values downward. We go from thinking of the things of greatest value as these things that are inaccessible, that require tremendous struggle, that most people will never attain, to thinking that the values are attainable by everyone. Or if they can't be, they're somehow problematic. Yeah, because uh, John... uh, I forgot his first name, but Bentham. Mm. The, uh, Jeremy Bentham. Yeah. yeah, Jeremy Bentham. He he often talks about, because I just read this in another uh-huh. class, uh, he talks about that all our fundamental um, orientation toward life has to do with the maximization of pleasure. That's right. And the avoidance of pain. I was like, as soon as I read it, I was like, come on, you're... You're you're reducing everything down to this the simplistic logic. Yeah. There's so many other things. We're not um, we're not letting our unconscious work. We're not letting um, the cosmos interact with us. Mm. We're not even uh, sort of. It just I don't know. It just stripped things of, of its meaning. What does what does Nietzsche have to say about that? What do you have to say about that? Uh, yeah. So Nietzsche actually thinks that Bentham is quite superficial. So he says that a couple of times. So he um, he has this famous line where he says. Uh, man does not will happiness only the englishman does and you know the englishman that's that's bentham and mill and some other utilitarians um but basically he thinks that's right that well i guess one thing is that he thinks that happiness and its opposite pain are not really the fundamental drivers of human activity so he thinks that if you actually think about how human beings act we sometimes seek out pain and we sometimes avoid pleasure Mm -hmm. he thinks that if pain is perceived as meaningful for example you you would seek it out. What people object to is meaningless pain rather yeah. than pain as such. And, and that can be true even in mundane ways. Like in sports, there's lots of pain, but lots of people find that to be part of the attraction. Or mm-hmm. yeah, I, I used to run a lot. If I, When I would run long distances, it hurt. But that was part of what I liked about it, the sort of struggle and overcoming of that uh, fatigue and the muscle pains and so forth. So there's that. But even in, um, in more abstract contexts, he thinks that people are attracted to... Uh, to some sorts of pain when they're perceived as meaningful mm. and averse to pleasures that are perceived as meaningless. Especially when that pain involves sacrifice in the short term for a reward in the long yeah. term, right? Mm. Um, which reminds me of this, 
this is one of the most famous things that Nietzsche has said that almost everyone knows, which is the idea that what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah, that's right. So that's part of this idea of seeking challenges, seeking mm -hmm. struggles, and that being our deepest aim. That's what we really want. We want to face struggles that might actually be ones we can't surmount, mm -hmm. but we want them. We want to struggle against them and hope right. to attain them. I don't know how familiar you are with um, Jordan Peterson, the clinical psychologist that is all the wave right now, but um, he seems to talk about the central ideas that he has. He's borrowed them majorly from, from three people, um, from Nietzsche, from Jung, and then from, um, I guess the third one is sort of his own psychological interpretation of Jesus as, as, as a mode of good behavior okay. in the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not going to get into that. I'm, wh what he often talks about also is that having a giant mountain to climb at all times yeah. will sort of transcend you from the tragedy of nihilism and meaninglessness and mm -hmm. give your life some meaning if you take responsibility for that. And I find that really fascinating because he's sort of reintroducing Nietzsche's ideas again. And I'm wondering what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so Nietzsche certainly thinks that uh, something like that is right, that uh, having challenges to overcome is going to be a crucial part of leading mm -hmm. a full uh, enriching human life. Right. He thinks that not having that can lead to a kind of pessimism or even nihilism. Mm. And one what, thing, what is nihilism for, for the oh, people who don't know? Oh, good question. So Nietzsche distinguishes a couple different types. So um, some of the main types. Um, one type of nihilism could just be having a pessimistic reaction to the world. So thinking that life Everything is, sucks? Yeah, uh, to the extent that life isn't even worth living. So, mm -hmm. you know, Nietzsche reads um, Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, who's this philosopher who lives a little bit before Nietzsche, a little earlier in the 19th century. And Schopenhauer famously argues that happiness is impossible, that the best sort of response to the suffering that's pervasive in life is to withdraw from life, to reject life. So Nietzsche's associating that kind of reaction with a kind of nihilism, that sort of mm. pessimistic rejection of life. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is, um, and I think this is one thing he's really interested in with respect to nihilism, is not having the sorts of values that would give you challenges to overcome that would seem meaningful. What does so, that mean? Um, so imagine you're like Bentham, for example, and you mm. just think that, um, or if you're like a simplistic version of Bentham and you think that and all that's valuable is pleasure. Bentham and is the guy who says that maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain is our drive in life. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. That those mm -hmm. are the only things that have uh, intrinsic value, uh, reducing pain and increasing pleasure. Mm -hmm. But um, Nietzsche thinks if you have a view like that that doesn't give you anything in particular to strive for. So imagine that I buy into Bentham um, I could spend all of my time watching TV or you know, sitting on the couch and it's mildly pleasant and there's not much pain involved, seems fine. Um, if I try to do something very challenging, it will probably contain various types of suffering and pain, at least in the sense of like frustrations and struggles to surmount. It might not be physical pain, but a kind of intellectual pain. Um, I would need a reason to, to do that. I would need to be able to tell myself something about why I'm doing that challenging thing rather than some alternative thing. Now, if you have what Nietzsche often calls higher values, these values yeah. that would pick out difficult activities um, and give them a kind of meaning. I mean, some of them would come within religious contexts, for example. So if you are a Christian, for example, you'll think that certain values, um, the ones relating to service to God and so forth, are of much greater importance than mundane things like attaining pleasure and so mm -hmm. forth. So you would see a purpose in some very challenging, very difficult activities that would give you a venue in which to you know, to climb mountains, to struggle against adversity, to uh, push yourself to your limits. Right. But if you don't have that, if you don't have any values that would make those sorts of struggles sensible, mm -hmm. 
Nietzsche thinks that's a kind of nihilism. Yeah. Okay. Then let's address the elephant in the room right now. Yeah. Because nihilism is mm. is a serious problem. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it in so many of my contemporaries, mm. and I've suffered my own bouts of nihilism, yeah. especially after your class, <laughs> which was necessary because I do believe that you have to go through that yeah. in order to re-examine your value systems and build something up. Uh. The problem is that, okay, with with um, with the breakdown of organized religion, ninety um, percent of my Christian friends are lapsed Catholics. That that says something, right? Yeah. Um, and then and then with the sort of postmodern pull back the lens question everything idea, right? Um, reduce everything to its roots and then t- tear it out. Um, people are struggling with establishing meaningful value systems outside of religion, right? Yeah. And you happen to be an atheist. Um, yeah. And you certainly seem to be doing fine considering that you're all well and stuff and you teach these classes. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> so how does that work? How does that work? Um, good. Yeah, it's a good question. So I guess one problem of nihilism this would be a third type of nihilism and maybe this is the one you're pointing to existential nihilism. Um, I, that would be a good way of describing it so it would be seeing that there are all these different evaluative systems that are available and you know if you accept one of them you'll have certain values if you accept another you'll have other values but you don't see a good reason for accepting any one of them over right. any of the others so maybe you grow up as a christian of some sort but you see that there are competing values. There's Buddhism, there's atheism, there are all kinds of other uh, evaluative systems. Why pick Christianity over one of those others? Um, If you get in a position like that, you can feel sort of adrift. You can feel that you don't know what sort of system to buy into. You don't see any set of values that seems any better justified than any of the others. And so that too is a type of nihilism for Nietzsche, that Mm -hmm. kind of disorientation. And I guess your question is what to to do about about it. Yeah, Um, it's not an easy, thing to deal with. And Nietzsche doesn't think that there's any general answer about what to do with it. So one thing he often tells us to do is let go of the desire to find some kind of external sanction for those evaluative systems. So he thinks that in the past, the way that people would address these sort of questions is by thinking that one of those value systems is going to be right and the others are going to be wrong. Oh, yeah. So it's it's the idea that, um, so what if I can't find happiness in this specific context? Mm. I can just buy into something else or God will help me, something like that. Right? That, that can be a way of doing it, yeah. Or also just the idea that um, maybe we'll find some argument, we'll, we'll find something in the universe that will justify one of these over the right. others. And so ultimately there might be some way of resolving the problem. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche doesn't think that sort of thing's ever going to be available. So it's not just an accident that we have all these alternatives. He thinks that instead what we could look for is um, a set of values that would make possible what he calls the affirmation of life. So he thinks that there is some... That life is worth living? That life is worth living. Mm. And, and he, that's the baseline. That's the baseline. And he thinks the highest form of this would actually be what he calls eternal recurrence. So he has mm. this interesting thought experiment. He asks you to imagine that you're told that you're going to just eternally repeat your life with no detail change. Same thing over and over again. Every little detail, just as it was. And he asks, what's your reaction to that going to be? Are you going to be... He thinks most people would be profoundly depressed by it and distressed because you'll want to change certain things. You won't find life satisfying and so forth. But if you could get into a state where you'd actually crave that, where you'd crave the eternal repetition of your life, Nietzsche thinks that would be sort of the fullest affirmation of your life. Wow. Um, So if you could embrace values that would enable you to do that, to will... If, you know, if presented with a possibility, to uh, will the eternal repetition of your life, that would be the highest form of affirmation. Right. That would be the sort of opposite of the form of nihilism that we were starting with. 
Um, and that's actually, he writes this book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and essentially what the character does is just that. He starts out with a negative reaction, that sort mm -hmm. of nihilistic reaction to contemplating this thought experiment. And he gradually, over the course of the book, gets himself into a position where he can will the eternal repetition of his life and view right. that joyously. But how does someone do that if, um, let's just say that your past has been full of tragedy, yeah, self-loathing, um, and you've done a lot of mistakes. Does Nietzsche talk about forgiveness and then moving forward? Or does he say that this needs to happen um, isolated of that? Like it's just a thought experiment. It, he does talk about a kind of self-forgiveness, I guess you could mm. call it. So one thing he's really interested in is the way that our experience of the world is interpreted by us. Sometimes it's like very immediate way. It's not that you're sitting back and thinking about it in, in abstract fashion and so forth. but. Sometimes my immediate experience of stuff is influenced by the way that I uh, classify and categorize things. So mm. he, he tries to make this analogy by pointing to artists sometimes, and he'll, he'll say stuff like this, that, um, you know, imagine an artist who's just painting a bowl of fruit or, you know, something entirely mundane, something that you would never even look at in the ordinary world. Mm. But the artist is making it beautiful. He's making yeah. it aesthetically appealing. Um, or you can imagine photographers, whatever, lots of people doing things like that. Nietzsche says that we can do that to our own lives. We can reframe things, we can reconceptualize things, we can focus on certain aspects and not on other aspects. We can bring new interpretations to our lives that make them aesthetically appealing. So, you know, maybe I have some past failure, something that I regret, some thing I wish I hadn't done. I can try to reinterpret that in a new way and find something redeeming in it. I mean, Nietzsche says this even about his own illness. So he suffered terribly throughout his life and eventually goes insane and dies. And he's, uh, by the end of his life, he's in a wheelchair, he can't speak, he can't interact with people. So he has a what would look like a horrible life to a lot of people. Even when he's lucid, he's in intense pain quite often. But mm -hmm. Nietzsche says that he would actually will the repetition of that illness. So right. if he had the choice, he would go through it again because it enables his philosophical insights, his um, investigations of these topics and so forth. Which is fascinating because Nietzsche, despite all these atrocious atrocities that, that have been committed, onto him by circumstances yeah. or by his own, you know, disposition toward life. Let's just say that. Um, he's still not buying into the whole victim narrative. He's still mm -hmm. not uh, sitting down on his desk and writing about how horrible his life is, which is what some of the existentialist philosophers have done, right? That's true. They, they can be... Um they can dwell on the negative in a way that right. Nietzsche tends not to. Which and which is fascinating because one of the things I, as I was, you know, pulling the notes for this, is that he off for when he, um, in his book, the Thus Book Zarathustra, mm -hmm. he's talking about this sort of a resentful, politically oppressed uh, class that that thinks that it's morally virtuous that there's this sort of oppressor class that's oppressing them, and as a result, they're the victims in that situation. And the oppressor is obviously the oppressor. So they have the fundamental moral high ground to, you know, what's the word? Um, pursue their oppressors. Yeah. And um, it's validated. But Nietzsche doesn't seem to believe that. Yeah, no, he doesn't. So he thinks that that is uh, a sort of revenge fantasy of the mm. kind that we were talking about a little it's bit earlier. It's a revenge fantasy? With, uh, yeah, he thinks it's an expression of resentment that mm. um, he'll talk about the slave revolt in morality and so right. forth. So he thinks that um, what basically happens in the transition from ancient morality to modern morality is that uh, we have initially 
most of the society accepts the noble values. So they think that the characteristic traits of the nobility are good. And they mm -hmm. think that the characteristic traits of the commoners are, or the slaves, as Nietzsche likes to call them, are bad. Mm -hmm. um, which just means that they think that things like strength and beauty and wealth and power, especially military power, because these societies are set up in this very antagonistic way, that that stuff is good. And the exemplary people are the great warriors, the great, beautiful, wealthy uh, nobles, right? Um, and if you're not that, you're unfortunate, you're bad. Yeah. You, you just want to be like that. Most people won't be, but most people would want to be. But then Nietzsche imagines that a priestly caste could come around and the priestly caste would want to, in a way, supplant the nobles. They'd want to be in the position of dominance. They'd want followers, but they're not the great noble warriors. So the way that they attempt to cultivate followers yeah. um, is in part through the process of resentment. Um, so they start to uh, bear the sort of impotent, vengeful hatred of the nobles because the nobles have what they want and there's no mm -hmm. realistic way for the the priest to get it and gradually Nietzsche imagines the priest's values transforming um, that so that what the nobles characteristic traits are come to be labeled as evil and then uh, their opposite comes to be labeled as good and then Nietzsche imagines those values catching on among the slave classes initially because wow. um, you know because those would be the traits that would appeal like if, if I'm a slave in one of these ancient societies and somebody comes along and tells me that my oppressors are evil, that I am actually living the good life, that right. by being meek and humble and subservient and so forth, that I'm the good. And that guy, that powerful like you know, person at the top of the social strata, that's yeah. the that's the evil one. That'll be really attractive, much better than the opposite. It's so fascinating. By the way, they have a term for that. It's called mm -hmm. virtue signaling. That, yeah, that's what, that's what yeah. they tend to go by nowadays, which is which is to say that and this is what Nietzsche also talks about, is that you let's just say you're not getting sex. You will say, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm a pure person. Yeah. Uh, I practice purity. Let's just say that you don't have the capacity to take revenge mm. on your on the, on the people who've done wrong to you. You will say I'm a forgiving person. Yes. Right? Mm. So it's like he's saying that you can label these just as you can label pain as something worthwhile, you can label cowardice as good. That's right. Right? Yeah, and that will make you feel much better about yourself. Um, but I wonder if that's a long-term solution because I definitely believe that, um, especially with the sort of victim narrative that parades, because I'm from India, I haven't mm. seen it that much back back at home, but as right. soon as I came here, I noticed that, especially in the colleges, um, people tend to really easily fall into these victim narratives. And and suddenly, I mean, you, if you think about race or class or gender, there's all these different things that these categories that they start labeling as oppressor versus oppressed, oppressor versus oppressed, right? And then and if you identify with the oppressed, anything that you do is the good. And let's just say you don't go out, but secretly you want to go out and you want to have fun. You label yourself as hardworking, but you don't even hard work. So right. I, I'm just, I'm, it's just fascinating to me that how what Nietzsche conceptualized is now manifesting once again in, you know, in this postmodern context. Yeah, so Nietzsche does think that this is a characteristic human reaction, at least on the part of certain people, that right. when we're prevented from getting something that we deeply want by some other group or some other person, that one reaction that a certain sort of person will have is the one you're describing, where we uh, take up this sort of ideology of victimhood and uh, reject the thing that we secretly want and sort of relabel it to disguise the fact that we want it. So that's what's supposed to be happening with the priests. But Nietzsche thinks it's also happening in other ways in, in his time. That That's fascinating. Um, th just the ramifications of that. Um, 
And it's funny because, well, one of the, I just want to sort of segue to um, this idea that Nietzsche has is that, you know, valuable things will be painful. Yeah. So, so, so instead of becoming a victim, is it safe to say that people are just scared of acting these things out because they're scared of being hurt? That can be part of it. So people have many different psychological profiles. For um, sure. And, you know, some of the people who Nietzsche imagines these values catching on for would be ones who are just fearful, who feel comforted by the idea that uh, these new values that they're accepting are labeling their own sort of meekness and um, reservedness and inability to compete and things like this as goods. Mm -hmm. Because then you can imagine you've deliberately chosen them. So like in the in the sex example, um, if I'm frustrated in my sexual pursuits, I can tell myself that I didn't really want that, that that's bad, that it's it's better, it's purer yeah. to, to be abstinent or whatever. And in doing that, I can make it look chosen and that can make me, it can restore my sense of power. It can make me feel better about myself. So that is a temptation. Yeah. Colloquially speaking, that's what people call rationalizing. Right, yeah, that's yeah. right. It's, it's a like, kind of um, rationalization. You can rationalize anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I want to talk to you about is, and this is the one question that, when I asked my friends, like, hey, I'm having my professor come in and he's going to talk about Nietzsche, it's like, can you ask him to explain what is the meaning of the death of God? Sure. Yeah, so that is... That's, <laughs> hey, and I you mean, just say, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's one of Nietzsche's biggest ideas, right? Yeah. So that's one of the things he's famous for. Um, so the death of God is, in a sentence, it's the idea that the traditional conceptions of God have become unbelievable, that we can no okay. longer take them seriously. And one way I often explain this in my classes is that Nietzsche doesn't give any arguments for it. What he likes to do is he, he'll, he'll be thinking of it in something like this way. So I don't have an argument that like the ancient Greek conceptions of divinity, like Zeus and Athena and all these other uh, divinities, I don't have an argument that they didn't exist or that they're not real, but it's not a live possibility for me. I don't take it seriously. It would never occur to me that to be something that I would need to defend. It's just... It's just obvious mythology, right? So I would never um, take up uh, either a proof or a disproof of those sorts of things. Nietzsche thinks we're moving toward that with modern conceptions of God, that perhaps in a few centuries, people will look at the Christian God or um, the Islamic God or you know, any uh, religion you like. They'll look at those in the same way that we now look at Greek mythology, where it's an interesting fact that for a while people bought into these conceptions, but it's not anything that we have to refute. It's not mm -hmm. anything that we can even any longer take seriously. Yeah, it would change from religion to mythology. Yeah, that's right. And um, Nietzsche thinks that's happening. So he sometimes says that he's writing the history of the next few centuries. So he thinks mm -hmm. that, you know, it'll be gradual. It'll take a few centuries. Right. Um, so far, it's been one since Nietzsche was uh, alive. But um, over time, he sees the grip of religions as gradually loosening. And I think what you're pointing to where people are lapsed Christians and so forth, mm -hmm. A lot of people in the present day still do believe in religion in some nominal sense, but it for a lot of people, it doesn't occupy the central role that it once did. So if you went back a few hundred years and looked at the sort of wars that were fought over, like subtle religious distinctions, the um, the way that the concept of God would pervade societies, that it would, it would be a, a big part of individuals' lives, a lot of that in a lot of parts of the world, not everywhere, of course, but in a lot of parts, it's gone, essentially. And people may proclaim that they're religious in some sense, but it doesn't have the deep significance for them that it once did. Right. Like, for example, in China, and I might be, uh, I'm not scholarly qualified to give this, but um, I, I've talked to a lot of Chinese students and they say that 
their god is work and tradition. They don't really actually have a god, which, yeah. is, which is fascinating. Yeah, so th that's the sort of process that Nietzsche is pointing to, where I suppose that when we talk of God, we could just be talking about what we value, what we think mm. our, our central or deepest values are. Mm. But uh, the idea that there's something beyond, something that would justify mm. that by uh, appeal to some kind of external reality or some metaphysical claim about an existent being, that Nietzsche thinks is fading away. The question then is um, that Nietzsche has sort of uprooted the very um, bedrock of what a civilization rests on, right? And he's saying, okay, God is dead, he reigns dead, and we've killed him. And then he's, uh, he's, he's giving us an injunction to find these values. Now, the interesting dichotomy of that is, and this is what, you know, sort of uh, Dostoevsky mentions in his... Uh, seminal work with it the brothers Karismov yes mm -hmm. he says that you know uh, we, we sort of discussed this that if you give man the burden of bread he will be happy but you give him freedom you know he's, he's going to suffer so like now there's a paradox of choice there's just so many choices yeah how do you construct those values yeah so that's one of the things that Nietzsche is deeply worried about so he thinks that when you still have these religious conceptions that are playing these central roles then you'll have lots of values in light of which people can organize their lives and make their choices and so forth. But the great danger is that with the death of God, you get some form of nihilism. You get people who are adrift, who don't know what uh, what values to hold on to or if they can hold on to any at all. So that's really what Nietzsche thinks of as the big problem for modernity, the attempt to forge some new sets of values that could survive the death of God. What according to you has been successful in doing that? Because I know for a fact that the Chinese people are pretty successful in that sense because I've met so many students who keep saying that tradition matters. Yeah. Tradition matters. Family matters. Values of that matter, right? Mm -hmm. And I've seen the same thing um, in, in my own country, India, where mm -hmm. I'm from, is that there's such an, uh, uh, a sort of overarching set of values about um, community and believing in, in the cosmos and uh, duty towards your father, mm -hmm. your mother, all of those things. Well, Every second, third person may have nihilism. And this is what, you know, Nietzsche might say that you're just, you know, rationalizing, but because they have a solid framework of values that even an elite, educated Indian will grapple with atheism, but will still culturally adhere to the same values that the rest of the country does, irrespective of the religious, you know, ideas. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. One thing that Nietzsche is worried about is whether that can be stable in the mm -hmm. long term. So he says that, um, he expresses this metaphorically, he says that after the death of God, we'll still have shadows of God that linger for a while. Yeah. And part of what he's thinking of there, is, uh, and also what he thinks about in this image that he gives in his book, The Gay Science, when he has this passage where he imagines a, a madman who like runs out into the light of day with a lantern and shoves it in people's faces and says he's looking for God and that God has died and things like this. Um, part of what he's trying to convey with a lot of these images is this idea that um, some of the concepts and values associated with religions will live on after people give up the explicit belief in God, but that that might not have lasting success. So what he thinks is for a few generations, you might just sort of remove the belief in God and still have all the same values and distinctions and so forth that went along with that religion. Right. But will that be stable in the long run or will it begin to fade? Will those values occupy a less central role in people's lives when they no longer have that kind of metaphysical backing? He's worried that they won't. Are you familiar with the works of Sam Harris? Uh, no, not really, no. He's, he's considered to be the, the four horsemen of 
atheism. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I think the other one is Richard Dawkins. I mean, right, right. That's true. Um, and, and I've, because I, I've sort of, I've never really jumped completely into atheism, right? Yeah. Um, is I wonder how an atheist, especially because the onus is sort of on the atheist to help the rest of the world who's still struggling if there's God or not God, right? How does an atheist, especially in the wake of death of God, construct values? I know that you mentioned in your article that, you know, if if I like to write, uh, sorry, if I if I love to drink tea or travel, that's not a value yeah. necessarily. Yeah, not of the sort that Nietzsche would want. It's not going right. to give you enough to, to go on. Yeah. So could you talk more about that? Sure. So how do you do it? So this is, in some ways, the deepest thing that Nietzsche is struggling with. So how would you create lasting values after the death of God? And what would that look like? How would they be justified and so mm -hmm. forth? Um, he tries out a couple of different solutions. I don't know. So I'm not certain that any of them succeed. And I think that even Nietzsche himself is not entirely certain that any of them will succeed. One thing that he imagines is giving uh, sort of aestheticized uh, justifications of values. So it, when he's relatively young, Nietzsche is really interested in uh, Richard Wagner's music and the sort of values that are embodied in that music. And one thing that he thinks is interesting about that, he, you know, he later on comes to think it's problematic for various reasons. But one thing he thinks is interesting is that it embodies a kind of cultural movement where a new set of values is being propounded. So he'll often wonder whether you could set up either a, a, some kind of cultural movement, some sort of artistic movement, something like that, that would bring into existence some distinctively new set of values and organize culture around that, thereby giving people something to, to live for, something to struggle toward. Mm -hmm. The problem is he doesn't say much about what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And um, another problem is that there are ways that that could go very badly, that it could uh, get linked to values that Nietzsche would reject. Like tyranny. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so that's one one solution, um, but I'm not sure how successful it would be. Another thing that Nietzsche says or suggests, at least, is to try to free yourself of that traditional need for these grand um, externally justified values, and to immerse yourself in life with this affirmative attitude, so that you come to take up some task, not necessarily because you think that it's given um, some sort of special status by some external value or anything like that, mm -hmm. but just because you see it as a venue in which you can express your interests and your powers and capacities. So, you know, maybe Nietzsche takes up philosophy and writing and so forth, not because he thinks that there's some argument that would show those to be the most justified activities or anything like that, but just because he finds a kind of joy in them. He finds that through doing them, he can give vent to his energies and capacities right. and find things to struggle against. So then I wonder um, what you what got you into Nietzsche. Like what's yeah. what's the what's the fascination with him? So for me, it's a couple of different things. One thing is what we've been talking about. So I think nihilism is a a real problem in contemporary culture, and it's one that sadly most modern moral philosophy doesn't really focus on. So if you look at like the self help industry, that that's a sham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. If you look at like academic philosophy, a lot of it's just on stuff uh, about. Just um, a sec. I, I wonder if you can just like. Oh, sure. Yeah, is that better? Yeah, that's much better. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, the problem is that, um, let's see, so uh, a lot of modern academics, when they write about moral philosophy, are basically interested in whether we can justify traditional moral claims. So they explore various arguments about whether you can establish that, I don't know, that you should keep your promises or that you shouldn't tell lies or what sort of um, reasons we could appeal to yeah. in order to show that those things are justified. And, you know, those can be interesting questions, but I think the questions that Nietzsche's interested in 
are much deeper. He's not worried so much about these particular uh, moral claims and whether they have any sort of grounding. He's worried about these deep problems about how we can go on living, how we can struggle with life, how whether we can affirm life. So that's one thing that attracts me to him. Um, I guess another thing is that I think he has this really rich account of unconscious mental life and the yeah. motivations that human beings experience. And I'm just fascinated by that. I think it's it hasn't been appreciated. So have you tried to approach this idea of the unconscious um, from other fields other than philosophy? I mean, psychology and then, you know, biology and even mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology, all those things. Yeah, I do find those fields very interesting. And I um, often try to draw on them a bit in my work. So I think uh, in social psychology, for example, there are a lot of interesting studies of unconscious influences and unconscious um, affects and the way in which they influence choices, decisions, and just ordinary actions. So there's a lot of great stuff there. Um, some of the work on evolutionary psychology is really illuminating and yeah. showing like how we might have come to certain dispositions and why we might be tempted by certain values. Yeah. So yeah, I think that stuff is really worthy of study. Nietzsche tried to, uh, he would study the versions of those things that were present, yeah. which were of course a lot cruder in his day. I but... imagine what he would do if he had the knowledge that he, yeah. he was born today, you know? Yeah. Because um, one of the things that I did in my sort of, you know, quest for understanding myself and this idea of self-overcoming and sort of becoming uh, the person I want to be is that I, I try to incorporate more of biology and psychology, which I had yeah. an aversion to because if you have this sort of conception of yourself as as someone who's based in the arts, you want to be abstract. But the thing with the abstract is it doesn't always help. You need to ground yourself in, in, in some kind of, you know, Especially yeah. now, it just it just seems stupid. Yeah. If if you don't you know factor these things in and and you're simply yeah. existing in the the abstract plane, so I found out that our motivations um, have three origins. And again, not qualified on this, but I'm just saying what I what I've uh, gathered. Sure. Is that we have three brains. There's the reptilian brain, which is right here mm. in the back, like right where the head ends and the neck start, starts. And that's responsible for um, our fight or flight responses, fight, flight, or freeze responses, right? Uh, then there's the mammalian brain, which is sort of right afterward. Um, and that's responsible for our impulses and emotions and moods and desires. And finally, which is the sort of thing that Aristotle and Socrates and Plato fancied, is our neocortex, which is the reasoning brain, which sort of brings all these together. Which, which controls and restrains and rationalizes and argues and all of those things. Mm. And uh, this fascinating author, Robert Greene, who's, who's written a many, he's, he's basically a great summarizer of many different concepts. I yeah. think he does that really well. Um, he, he talks about how, um, you know, our unconscious, which he calls the emotions, and our rational, which he calls us, are sort of like a, a horse and a horse rider. Right. So he says that the unconscious is like a horse and you're the horse rider as the rational. He says, you don't want to let the reins free completely because mm -hmm. then it's going to drive you wild. Yeah. But you also don't want to hold the reins too tight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting way of uh, that sort of image of the three different brains is an interesting way of uh, pointing to some of these results from evolutionary biology and social psychology. Nietzsche has a an image that's not too different from that. So he, rather than the horse and reins thing, mm -hmm. he imagines a captain on a ship and he, he pictures the ocean, you know, the, as the, the, the vast reservoir of unconscious thought and affect and so forth. And he says, you know, the captain, which is the, the rational conscious thought, 
is doing something with that. He can steer the ship by taking account of its movements. He can use these energies. The ship being our body. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. So he can, you know, shift the thing in new directions and so forth. But in a way, he's beholden to those forces, right? He has Hmm. to um, interact with them. And to the extent that you know them, to the extent that you know what they are and um, have deeper knowledge of them, you might be able to do that better. Yeah, like if you're a seaworthy captain who's who's seen um, many you know, tsunamis and stuff yeah. like that, you sort of know, okay, now is the time to buckle up and, That's right. and, and you know, brace through this descent into uh, the dark. Yeah. And then there are times like, oh, it's really pleasant. We're moving really fast. It's great. Uh-huh. It's all those things. So that's really fascinating that he yeah. sees everything outside of us and our unconscious as this sort of unpredictable ocean. The best we can do is form a a dynamic template for dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. He thinks you'll never know it completely, but mm. you can you can do a better and worse job. And we could know more about it if we were to study some of the right. empirical results that you're mentioning. So l- let's talk about um, organized religion for a bit. Sure. Um, Nietzsche has a lot of problems with Christianity, yeah. right? Um, and we, we mentioned it briefly, but mm. I just you know w- want to get deep into it. Why does he think that? And although he does acknowledge that it has... Th- it has its intrinsic value that it gives people structure and meaning. What's his problems with that? So one of the biggest problems he has with Christianity is the values that it, it expresses and fosters. So he thinks that at a very abstract level, he pictures it sort of like this, that the Christian religion teaches that life can be justified only by pointing to something outside of life. Hmm. So that could be some conception of an afterlife. It could be some conception of God. But the basic idea that he sees as intrinsic to various versions of Christianity is that life itself is really problematic. It's, It's despicable and disgusting in various ways, but it's something you go through. It's something you struggle through almost like a test. Hmm. And then if it goes well, you'll be rewarded in the afterlife or at least the, if not that precise picture, at least the features that would make life worth living would all pertain to something otherworldly. So he thinks that structure is intrinsic to Christianity and not just to Christianity, but some other religions as well. Um, And he thinks it's deeply misguided. He thinks it leads people ultimately to this very negative, pessimistic reaction to life. Because basically, if you accept that set of values, then once you start thinking that God is dead, as Nietzsche thinks we all will in time, Hmm. you've basically lost everything of value. Everything of value is supposed to be this religious stuff that's outside of ordinary existence, but that's all gone. So all you're left with is is this world, this life, and that was what was treated as despicable, as a need of justification by something external. One of the ideas that he has, which is in, sort of in synchronization with what you're talking about, is the idea of the slave morality, yeah. which 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 serves to prove that. Um, what is it exactly? So the slave morality, Christianity is supposed to be a, a sort of outgrowth of it, mm. but it's basically this idea that we were mentioning a little bit earlier when Nietzsche imagines priestly figures having mm-hmm. uh, this sort of resentment-filled reaction to the ancient nobility. And the bourgeoisie. To, yeah. I mean, I guess the ancient bourgeoisie, yeah. And um, yeah, and thinking of them as evil and basically defining goodness as yeah. whatever is not noble. So, you know, the nobles are wealthy, so what's good is poverty. The nobles are strong, so what's good is weakness. The nobles are uh, prideful, so what's good is humility. So um, they define their values in that sort of way. And Nietzsche calls it the slave revolt because he thinks it historically like catches on among the slaves first. They're mm. the most oppressed, the most downtrodden. They're the ones who are really going to want these values in order to make them feel better about their lives, basically. 
Um, so that's the slave revolt. And then Nietzsche thinks it ultimately gives rise to Christianity and to um, associated philosophical systems. Right. I wonder if um, ideologies like socialism and Marxism, if they fall in the same structure or not. So Nietzsche does he doesn't say too much about political structures he occasionally will have like a side remark on socialism and things like this mm -hmm. he never talks about marx interestingly even though marx was you know active in roughly the same period right um but i think it's it's these political systems i think are not nietzsche's central focus so mm -hmm. while there'll be a stray remark here and there he doesn't really say much about them right. what he's skeptical of with socialism when he does mention it is basically the same as what he dislikes about. Yeah, it, it's basically the stuff that he dislikes in democracy as well, where mm. he thinks that um, it's a way of taking what's average or ordinary and making that the highest we could possibly aspire to. Whereas yeah. he thinks if you have some more hierarchical social structure, it will give you uh, it, will, it will give you hierarchies. It will give you things at the top to strive toward. So yeah. he worries. So that's so so what he's saying is, do not make the average the standard. Exactly. Do yeah. not bask in mediocrity. Yeah, and he thinks that we've increasingly done that as yeah, right. modernity has. Oh, developed. we're still doing that even yeah. now. I yeah. mean, we all know about the eighth place certificates and and all of those that's things true. that kids <laughs> yeah. get. It's just like everyone gets a reward. That's a sort of yeah. um, idea, and it's not even a, like a a new idea. It's just been no. there ever since. But. The, the ramification of that is, is, is you've, if you've if whoever has raised you and your society has sort of bolstered you for being ordinary yeah um, then you're gonna have a really tight slap on your face when you face the chaos of the world and you realize well I'm you know I don't stand anywhere yeah that's right and Nietzsche worries that you won't be tempted toward these great projects and challenges and so forth I mean if you if you're rewarded just for whatever you do why struggle mm -hmm. why challenge right. yourself why engage in these difficult endeavors mm-hmm um, and I'm wondering, because you've taught a course on existentialism, there are other existentialist philosophers as well. Yeah. Um, I really like the works of Dostoevsky. Yeah. Because he is someone who's able to introduce, like I said before, contemptuous base human states like self-loathing. Yeah. Um, you know, hating others, fantasizing to a large extent, envy, resentment, just the most like people who are existing. I think his book, The Underground Man, that guy, is, he's literally existing on the fringes of existence. Like yeah. he's barely there. And what's fascinating is that when you teach that, you, you sort of always teach it with neutrality. Mm -hmm. You're never, you don't have that grave expression that this is serious. Yeah. And I think that really helps in sort of offloading some of the stuff that that the sophomores, the unsuspecting sophomores have to face when they... Um, really go into the depths of that writing that's right so, yeah yeah it's i mean it's a very disturbing book when you look at what this guy is doing and look at the way he's living and the uh, resentment that pervades his life and so forth i mean it, that's actually where nietzsche gets the the word resentment the french word that he uses because he, he reads that book in um, a french translation so that he he can't read russian so he reads it in french and the the character's motivation is described as resentment, and that's when mm. Nietzsche starts using that term. And Nietzsche really likes Dostoevsky. He says he's the only psychologist from who he learns anything. So Dostoevsky he, was a psychologist? Do, um, I mean, Nietzsche calls him a, psycho okay, yeah, so a psychologist like, yeah. in the sense it's that like he's... like admiration. For yeah, him. like yeah. he's having these psychological insights because he, uh, he can do what you're saying. He can look at these degrading and disgusting aspects of mm. human emotions and present them really vividly and really convincingly. And what's the need to look at the base 
of humanity? What's the need? Um, well, I think if we don't look at it, if we just ignore it, then one possibility is it just sort of festers in the way that you see in that novel with the underground man where he's ignored and excluded and the resentment just builds to, uh, like up to the breaking point. I mean, if you imagine more and more people in that sort of state, it's uh, yeah. a frightening idea. Um, by looking at it, you might be able to interact with it. You might be able to mitigate some of these expressions of it, maybe to reduce their occurrence. Yeah. That would be the hope, I guess. Well, it's it's also a close parallel to the idea of uh, the Jungian shadow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the idea of the shadow archetype, which is to say that everything that has been repressed uh -huh. will persist. And, yeah, and that's you know, right. um, all the things that you've repressed in your subconscious, your psyche, either you'll try to project them onto others uh -huh. or they will eat you up. And you'll, you'll have these unconsciously inspired incidents every now and then. And then. He, he basically talks about how you should, you know, confront your shadow. Um, I actually tried to introduce that idea in, a, in the yeah. classroom. Uh -huh. um, so I, I have this speech class. It's a class in speech communication on how to give good speeches. Right. One of the things I did was my topic was to basically persuade people and to mm -hmm. make them look at something differently. And I talked about the shadow. Oh, okay. I was like, it's like, you know, I used this example that um, I think Peterson uses. And I was like, you know, you're as much the 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 prisoner at Auschwitz uh -huh. as you are the guard and when I said that people lost their their minds they yeah. some they were like no not me I was like no especially you <laughs> because it's the sort of thing that people don't contend with and that's what I my friends call me crazy because I always ask them hey hey you know confront your dark side like you yeah know, really get to the bottom of these emotions because they have something valuable to tell you yeah do not try to preach this sort of I'm all nice and I've never done a bad thing and everything is good because Ultimately, what's going to happen is you might do something really bad and yeah. you won't even know where it came from. Yeah, I think that's right. These uh, repressing these tendencies, I think, can be really dangerous because you, again, you just don't get rid of them. They'll, they'll come out in some new avenue. They'll, and often it can be even worse than yeah. the way in which they would have originally been expressed. Uh, one of the critiques I have of Nietzsche is based on my three days of research. So it, it, yeah. doesn't, have, it, it doesn't hold up at all in the academic world. But I, it was interesting because... Okay, there's this guy, he's sort of uprooting everything that the Western world holds to be true. Mm -hmm. And he's doing that as a poor man, a lonely man, yeah. a sexless man, yeah. um, a, a medically unfit man. Yeah. Why should we listen to this armchair philosopher? Right. Yeah. So what? Like, why take him seriously? Why yes. not just dismiss him? I mean, some people do, but I think that's a mistake. I think you have to judge the ideas on their merits. So it's surprising that somebody like that, somebody who's an outcast, somebody who's not part of regular human communities, would be able to produce these great insights. But I think that it's actually in part because he is an outsider, because he's not wrapped up in these things and is able to take a more impartial perspective on them. It's in part because of that that he's able to have these insights. So sometimes when you're, uh, you know, imagine that he'd been healthy, that he'd stayed in the university, that he was interacting with ordinary professors, that he'd had, uh, you know, a wife and children, that he'd had lots of friends in the social life. If he'd had all of that, he might not have been able to write these great, insightful, nuanced books. He might not have had that sort of insight. So his life was full of sacrifices. Is that something that he talks about at all in his works? Um, so he talks, I guess he doesn't view them as sacrifices, really, because uh, to think of them as sacrifices would suggest that they're bad. And he doesn't think that they are. Oh. He thinks that, you know, yes, he was isolated. He was sick. He um, he had failed romances, or at least one of them, probably just one, um, and all of that. But he doesn't view them as 
negative things. He views them as part of what made him who he is and what enables mm-hmm. him to engage in these projects that are so important to him. Which is the sort of, uh, it's, it's a stoic idea that, uh, uh-huh. it's called amor fati, yeah, which is right. a love of fate, that yeah. everything has happened has just been perfect. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and he worries that, um, he, so he endorses that idea, but he thinks, don't think that's the way things really are. Think that yeah. it's your skill and interpretation that's making them that way. Yeah. Um, because because we we prefaced the podcast with um the idea of drives. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the drives because okay. um, the, Freud has this idea that you know if you're having a trauma or if you're, ha- if you're having any kind of neuroses or psychosis, it's usually a manifestation of an unactualized sexual drive, uh, or it's a sort of a sexual trauma that you suffered. Yeah. That's the way he conceptualizes drives, right? Mm. Um, how does Nietzsche conceptualize it? So Nietzsche thinks of drives as these motivational states that are different from just ordinary desires. So if you have some desire for water or to see a friend or whatever, mm-hmm. um, usually what that means is that there's some definite state of affairs that you want to obtain. So you, you want the water, you want to see the friend, and then it's over. The desire goes away once you've done that. Yeah. So drives are supposed to be these lifelong things that don't just have particular aims in that way but also just seek to express patterns of activity. So having a sex drive or an aggressive drive, part of what that means is that you're when you're in the grip of the aggressive drive, for example, you're just trying to express aggressive activity. You're not trying to attain anything in particular. Yeah. You're just uh, in the grip of this drive and you're trying to act aggressively. And then you'll find stuff, like you'll find people to vent it on or things to vent it on. Same thing with the sex drive and the other drives Nietzsche mentions. But you're not seeking those things. You're seeking just the expression of that type of activity. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche thinks that once we recognize that, um, we'll come to see our own activities in a different way. We'll see that things that look disconnected could actually have this deeper unity. We'll see that whereas we think that we want to attain determinate things, what we're often more interested in is just expressing different types of activity. So that even means that bringing out some of the more deviant aspects? It could for particular people, like with the mm-hmm. sex drive, for example. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, Nietzsche doesn't go into as much detail with that as Freud, but in Freud, there's a similar idea. He conceives of drives a little bit differently, Freud does, but um, like the sex drive for him is something that can find just bizarre expressions, right? It, it mm-hmm. doesn't have to come out just in the ordinary ways. It can right. come out almost anywhere and almost in any way. Mm-hmm. And um, the things that it's directed on might be only like really loosely and associationistically yeah. connected to the original aim. Yeah. One of the things that was common in the students who took your class that that fateful spring uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was fateful because um i was never i had never been ex- exposed to literature and philosophy yeah that was dark yeah um and i sort of you know grew up reading indian mythology read a bit of plato Socrates. Right. that's it yeah it's very this different. is the first time when people are saying that you know this is the dark side of existence yeah. face it right so my roommate and i we collectively um Faced this nihilism every 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 class every, after every class, we would gather in my apartment. We, we would smoke a couple of joints, which is a bad thing, because it, then it would perpetuate the nihilism further. It's not <laughs> like so. alcohol that it dims it, right? Yeah, that's right. Because because we would overthink about it, and um, and we just sort of le- let this bum like life after every single class. But right. we would just come back again and again just to yeah. see how the different ideas of the philosophers would alter our moods. Like we were just at the mercy yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> of the literature. And I'm wondering, you um, you teach these things. Does it have a psychological impact on you? You know, going through this material again and again. 
You know, I feel like each time I teach it, I understand it in a deeper way. So I feel like every time I read these people, you know, I've, I don't know how many times I've done this now. It's been mm. a lot. But um, How long have you been teaching for? So it's been um, 10 years, I guess, since I finished grad school. Mm. So, And I guess even in grad school, I did a little bit of teaching. So maybe like... And where are you from? Um, I'm originally from Baltimore, actually. Okay. Um, but I, I did my graduate school at Harvard. And then, um, yeah, I guess I've been teaching... I've probably done existentialism like at least five or six times. But anyway, um, I uh, every time I reread those texts to teach them again, there's like something new that comes out, something hmm. very interesting. So I really like the process of teaching it. I mean, I, I, it's totally dark. It's um, these people are not afraid of uh, examining these usually hmm. these things that we would usually look away from. But I think a lot of them, especially the ones I find most interesting ultimately come away with some sort of positive reaction. Like Camus? Things. Yeah, exactly. So he preaches this kind of defiance. I mean, and he's really, yeah, I think in that class, I'm not sure if this was what we did in your version of it, but in most versions of it, I have people read one of his novels called The Plague. We read um, that. that. Yeah. That which is, the class ends with that. It starts yeah. with Underground Man, ends with that. Ends which with is, which is a really smart trick that he does. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that is a depressing book, right? It's about the, like, the outbreak of plague and this... Yeah. a city that's under quarantine and so forth. But what you see in that is people contending with like one of the most horrific things that could happen to a human community. And some of them aren't daunted by it. Some of them are able to go on and struggle with it and still lead a life that they could affirm despite this devastating uh, effect right. on the town. So I think there are ways that the existentialists are trying to teach us that even if we look at these really dark, really disagreeable aspects of human existence, there's a way of dealing with that. There's a way of engaging with it productively. But it's like, because a lot of my friends personally, like they all were raised religious, mm. but then somewhere along the line, they became either resentful or rebellious, and, and then yeah. they started suffering. And it's like now they're suspended in this sort of quasi-moral state where yeah. they have some values they've you know been able to say from their childhood. But most... Some of them say, like, the future looks really bleak, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, we're living in difficult times, I think. And mm. um, the, the breakdown of these traditional evaluative structures, the breakdown of the things that would ordinarily give us meaning and direction, I think that's being felt everywhere. And that people are trying to grapple with that. Um, yeah, and it can come out um, in a type of divisiveness. It can come out in uh, resentment. It can come out in all kinds of ways that are really dispiriting and depressing. I see. Um, okay, I feel like we've run, at least my mind has run the course of everything yeah. I could think about Nietzsche. Um, unless you have something that you'd like to drive home about Nietzsche, existentialism, nihilism, anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess the main message that I take from the existentialist and from Nietzsche in particular is what we were talking about, that you can look at these really disagreeable, really depressing aspects of human existence, but you don't have to shy away from them. You don't have mm -hmm. to hide them from yourself. So if you... face them voluntarily? Exactly. And um, Nietzsche tries to show us that we can struggle with life. We can lead a challenging life and find a kind of affirmation in it. So I, I think that's the message that so, I think is most important. So it? Professor Paul Katsifanaz preaches that face your struggles voluntarily and you will find something meaningful in, in a universe that is hell-bent on making things meaningless, you know, especially yeah. considering uh, the politics and the social media. Um, yeah, and thank you so much. Um, yeah. I, 
if if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? They have questions. I'm not oh. expecting you to be someone's therapist because you, you know you're an academic. <laughs> but in in case someone does want to reach out to you about more of like where can they find you? Yeah, so um, I have a web page. If you search for uh, me on the internet, Paul Katsafanis, you'll find my uh, web page, okay, and we'll that put has a description right here. Yeah, okay. So there, you can look at it there, and uh, my email address is on there, so you could contact me through that. You can also find uh, a list of all my writings on that website. Yeah. So that's uh, another yeah, and, and you've written uh, four books, six books, um, three books, and then. Mm. Uh, 25 or 30 articles something wow. like that yeah. yeah i was i was trying to parse through a 300 yeah. page book on a need the niche itself yeah i only got through some of it but i'm fascinated by it oh so good I'm good i'm gonna read uh yeah. you know most of it but that, that's crazy so like this was the vitruvian man podcast um thank you for tuning in to, uh, episode 10 this was my professor paul katsifanas we talked about nietzsche existentialism nihilism and how to overcome it um and we'll see you next week with more stuff thank you so much professor thanks for having me